Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3. We continue our study in Genesis 3. It is pivotal to our theology. It is pivotal to our understanding of God, holy, 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 and mankind totally depraved, suffering beneath the effects of inherited and personal sin. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed." He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We have repeatedly looked at James chapter 1 to understand the fall of Lucifer before mankind and to consider the fall of Adam and Eve 
How could Lucifer, without a sin nature, how could Adam and Eve, without a sin nature, fall in sin? Is God to blame is a question that we must answer theologically. And James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So let no one, no angel, no man, no woman, Say when they are tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. You understand that God cannot be tempted by evil because God is the definition of good. God cannot be tempted by evil because God is holy, holy, holy. All that is contrary to God is that which is evil. All that is contrary to God's person, God's character, God's work, God's decrees, God's commands, God's law, that is evil. God is holy, holy, holy. God is entirely good and righteous and pure. The very definition of evil is that which is contrary to God. There is no other definition of evil available. In God's cosmos, the God who created the heavens, the earth in Genesis 1.1 is the God who defines evil in Genesis chapter 3. He is not a God of evil. He's a God who defines evil. However, he is a God who is sovereign over evil. A God who has allowed evil for his good purposes, chief of which is his own glory to put on display His perfections. The reason God spoke the heavens and earth into existence and created mankind on that sixth day, let us make man in our image, male and female, He created them, was to put His glory on display in the drama of redemption played out on the stage of this planet called earth. And that is the highest good. And all those saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the word of God that made them wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all those say, Amen. The fall of man, considered in light of James chapter 1, verse 13 and 15. Last time we looked at the deception in verses 1 through 4, the serpent came to the garden and deceived Eve through his ancient methodology that he still uses very well today. What is that ancient methodology? It is to question the Word of God, to bring doubt upon the Word of God, and then to outright deny and contradict the Word of God. Hath God said. Never forget that methodology. Hath God said. The devil's servants are still busy, still busy. They don't dress as serpents anymore but they have the serpent's heart and the serpent's methodology. And they continually come saying, hath God said, and let me give you a little hint. If it's new, it's not true. After 2,000 years, the Holy Scriptures are clear. They are understood. If it, theologically speaking, doctrinally speaking, is new, it's not true. Reject it. Hold fast to the faith once we're all committed to the saints. Reject the serpent's methodology. 
He came to Eve. He circumvented God's design, male headship, male leadership. Adam was to protect. Adam failed. The serpent came to Eve and questioned the word of God and then denied the word of God and then assured her, in fact, that there would be great benefit if you eat of this forbidden fruit. The benefit is that you will be like God. The very sin of the devil himself. He who wanted to be like God who was cast down from heaven. He came down from heaven and tempted Adam and Eve in the garden with the same sin. The day you, of you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And we know that the best lie contains some truth. Indeed, they will be like God, knowing good from evil. Only they will know it because they themselves will be evil. They will be depraved, totally depraved, bound up in iniquity. The devil came lying. And we know that the devil is the father of lies, as the Lord Jesus warned us in John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. That is the inherited nature of mankind at this juncture. Unless you are born again from above, unless you are a Christian... By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ and His finished work alone, unless that is your status, you are a child of the devil. You are serving Him knowingly or unknowingly. And Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in Him. When He speaks a lie, He speaks from His own resources, for He is a liar and the father of it. He came to the garden with those lies, did he not? And he led mankind into sin, and he still comes with his lies. Second Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church of Corinth, using a literal Eve and a literal serpent in the Garden of Eden as an example of how the devil works to deceive and saying that he is concerned that the church, these saints in Corinth, might be deceived by the same crafty serpent and his deceptions, that their minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, the simplicity of the gospel, that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ in his finished work alone. We see in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel or messenger of light. First, Timothy tells us of the deception of Adam and, or of Eve. It tells us that Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. And so Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. He knowingly followed her into sin. What is the greater sin? To be deceived into sin? It is still sin. But to knowingly sin is the greater sin. And Adam was accountable as her God-given protector, her God-given head. He was accountable to lead her in righteousness and to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he failed. And all too often we men act like the Adam of old, our great-grandfather, and fail. Let us not perpetuate the fall, allowing the devil to circumvent God's order in our homes. That is the deception. 
Next, we saw the temptation and the sin in verses 6 and 7, the temptation and the sin. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. She was deceived. Having listened to the devil, having dialogued with the devil, she descended into his deceptions. Don't dialogue with the devil. Rebuke the devil. Stand firm against the wiles of the devil. Flee if you must, but don't dialogue with the devil. Don't get chummy with the devil. This is the temptation and the fruit of temptation, the sin, the fall. She saw that it was good for food. Was it good for food? If you consider rat poison good for food, then yes, like that, it was good for food. I suppose it will fill a void in your belly, but it will kill you. That which kills you is not good for food. She was thoroughly deceived. She saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes. If you put a pile of green rat poison on my plate, it's not going to be pleasant to my eyes unless I am woefully deceived. What kind of deception must I be under? Now, mind you, the warning on the box says, you know, deadly, do not eat. And that comes with some authority but not the very authority of God. Adam and Eve had heard from God himself, deadly, do not eat. And yet they defied the authority of God because they were deceived by the devil. And so when they were served up this poison, they thought it was good for food, or at least Eve did, that it was pleasant to the eyes. Beware if you're starting to think that which God calls evil is good for consumption and pleasant to behold and to be in the presence of. That's a sure sign that sin is about to culminate in action, in deed. Sin long entertained in the mind and long desired eventually will be fulfilled. Flee from temptation. She saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Was it indeed desirable to make one wise? Wise for evil, but nothing good. No genuine wisdom. She took up its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And instantly they died. They died. Instantly they're under the curse of death. Instantly sin corrupted their synapses. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Instantly perversion came into their hearts and minds, and suddenly they're ashamed of their nakedness. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings, and that's the method we've been using ever since works righteousness. We get a bit of fig leaf and sew them together to cover ourselves up. All of man's religious works are summarized right there. And they're still naked in their sin before a holy God, despite their fig leaves sewn together. And if we trust in our works righteousness, no matter how convoluted the system of works righteousness is, no matter how ancient and venerable the system of works righteousness is, We are still naked before a holy God in our abominable sins. This is the temptation and the sin culminated. And then the curse of sin, verses 8 through 15, the curse of sin. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they had had perfect union and fellowship with God, but now they hide. 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves. And we've been trying to hide ever since. And at the end of the age, mankind still hides. He still hides. When Christ in all his glory returns in his second incarnation, they cry out for the mountains to hide them. For the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come and who is able to stand? Oh, saints, don't hide from God. There's no place to hide. His eyes are in every place. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. There's no place to hide. Run to God, not from God. Fear God and run to Him. Don't run away. They hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Trees won't hide you. Mountains won't hide you. Death will not hide you. The sea will not hide you. There is no place to hide from the presence of the Almighty. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. The question is asked, for the sake of Adam, that Adam might consider where he is, not so that God might find him. Verse 10, So he, Adam, said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Again, God is omniscient. The question is asked for Adam that he might be conscious of what he has done. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. Blame the woman, men, right? Blame the woman. Blame your parents. Blame the wife. Blame your teachers. Blame the police. Blame anyone except the man in the mirror. That's our sin nature. We inherited it from Adam. May God grant us repentance. We need to own our sin. We need to own our abominations and repent before a holy God. Not blame the woman that God, you, gave me. The parents you gave me. The culture you allowed me to be born into. The tyrannical police. The systematic racism. I've got to go burn down the city. I've got to go riot and attack innocent private citizens because of where you placed me, Lord. Now, there's no justification for such things. There's no justification for Adam's original sin or any sin since. But man has made his justifications. Any prison guard knows that everyone in the prison is innocent. They were all framed. They all got a raw deal. Even if they're not fully innocent, it shouldn't have gone down the way it went down in their mind. And so the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve blames the serpent. And mind you, God allowed the serpent to come. So again, that might be pushing it off upon God again. But certainly the serpent. Verse 14 So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat of the dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in this curse upon the serpent, still reviewing from last time, we find the gospel present, and that mankind shall be bruised on his heel, But Satan bruised upon his head, crushed, defeated. 
then Jesus Christ is the second Adam who comes and crushes the serpent's head upon the cross. And it's the serpent who entered into Judas and sent the Lord Jesus to the cross with that betrayer's kiss. In verse 16, we find the curse upon the woman. And to the woman, he, God, said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. The curse is upon her primary role as a woman, as a wife and mother. Her primary role, her primary mission in life as a wife and mother to be a helpmate to her husband and to raise godly offspring for the glory of God, that is under the curse. And we have all inherited that. And by the grace of God, we must overcome that through the power of the Spirit of God and the renewing of the mind through the Word of God. Verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face you shall eat it till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Adam's responsibility to provide for his wife and family is under the curse because, again, that's, that's his foremost role. That's his foremost task to provide. And now that is under the curse. That is complicated. It's made a struggle. It's toil. It's sweat. It's thorns. It's thistles. And it's other sinners out in the workplace competing with you. So we pick up here. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we can answer the question, who fell with Adam? Here's the answer. All of mankind in him. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam is our great, 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 great grandfather. Adam didn't just die. Eve didn't just die in the garden when they ate of that fruit. All their descendants in them died. We're under that curse. We are born dead in sin and trespass. Again, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. Now let me go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you do not have a literal creation week, and a literal Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, then you do not have a literal fall where one literal man sins and sin enters the world through him and death through sin, thus death spreading to all men because all sinned. An assault on The literal creation account of Holy Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2 is an assault on the gospel of Jesus Christ, is an assault on the Christian faith. We have inherited the sin nature of Adam, our father. If we were studying that doctrine further, we would find in Romans chapter 5 that it goes on to say in the same way, through one man, Jesus Christ, we receive righteousness through faith. Pastor John MacArthur comments in Romans 5.12, 
regarding sin entering the world, not a particular sin, but the inherent propensity to sin enter the human realm. Men became sinners by nature. Adam passed to all his descendants the inherent sinful nature he possessed because of his first disobedience. That sin nature is present from the moment of conception, making it impossible for man to live in a way that pleases God. Satan, the father of sin, first brought temptation to Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned, all mankind sinned in his loins. Since his sin transformed his inner nature and brought spiritual death and depravity, that sinful nature would be passed on similarly to his posterity as well. Adam was not originally subject to death, but through his sin, it became a grim certainty for him and his posterity. Death has three distinct manifestations. One, spiritual death. Two, physical death. And Three, eternal death, eternal torment in the lake of fire. Because all humanity existed in the loins of Adam and have through procreation inherited his fallenness and depravity, it can be said that all sinned in him. Therefore, humans are not sinners because they sin. Hear this. Humans are not sinners because they sin, but rather they sin because they are sinners. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You're born as such, coming from the womb with a sin nature, manifesting that nature as soon as you are able. And parent, if you haven't figured that out, (laughs) then you need to study the scripture and have your mind renewed so that you be not deceived by that precious little child who comes with a sin nature. And they begin to manifest it early. They come from the womb believing they are master And all the world, including God, the creator of the world, should bow down before them. And they must be taught from godly parents that they are subject to the authority of God by being held in subjection to the authority of father and mother. Lovingly held to that subjection, but nevertheless held into subjection to mother and father as an act that will train their heart to be subjected to their creator. What we experience today on the streets of Portland, Oregon, And every other city where BLM decides there's been an injustice, that's a culture that was never brought beneath the authority of mother and father and thus never brought beneath the authority of God. Those are children that were never told, eat what's on your plate and made to eat it. Those are children that were never told to go to bed and made to actually go to bed. Those are children that were never told to sit quietly and actually made to sit quietly. Those are children who were never disciplined under the design and authority of God. They are lawless and godless. Can they be redeemed? Yes. Are they created in the image of God? Yes. Are their souls precious? Yes, but their parents have done them a vast disservice. May we not be counted among such parents. By the way, how did this fall affect the original children? They came forth with murder in their hearts. And Cain rose up and slew Abel. So the sin nature is inherited through Adam and thus death spread to all men. If you reject a literal Genesis 1 and 2, then you believe in a Big Bang cosmology and evolution. And evolution says it's not God with infinite power and wisdom who created life with near infinite design in every cell of life. Rather, life is an accident. And once life got started by pure accident and chance against the law of biogenesis, It's an impossibility. Nevertheless, once that got started, then it was millions of years of death 
and struggle that finally resulted in mankind. It's a complete contradiction to the Word of God. Sin precedes death. Death is not our friend. Death is not our creator. Sin precedes death. Death is our enemy. And our creator came into the world to conquer sin and death, our enemy. Praise God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, we find out how far the fall went. What is the effect of the fall? Are we a wee bit depraved? Is that wonderful acronym, TULIP, correct? And we're totally depraved? What does that mean? Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. The totality of our being is corrupted with sin. Even our best deeds are tainted with sin. There are none who do good, no, not one. There are none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. We don't understand God. We don't understand righteousness in and of ourselves. There's none who seeks after God. There are no seekers, not in the flesh, mind you. There are no understanders, not in the flesh, mind you. If one is seeking God and understanding the things of God, it's by the power of God's Spirit compelling them. For the scripture says there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is nothing that we do that is profitable for righteousness or the glory of God until by the grace of God we are regenerated, granted the gifts of repentance and faith, indwelt with the Spirit of God, and then we can begin to walk in the righteous works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk therein because we have been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works. It's a gift of God lest we should boast. So how far did we fall in Adam? We fell to the point of total depravity, radical corruption, the heart deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. That's how far we fell. We can look at John 6, 36 and 37 quickly to consider how far mankind fell. Jesus said, I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They saw his perfect power. They saw his perfect wisdom. They saw his perfect love, and yet they did not believe. You see, we do not have an evidence problem. We have a sin problem. There is sufficient evidence for all men to believe upon their creator. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. Psalm 19. But Romans 1 tells us, We suppress the truth in unrighteousness because we love our sin. And so, even when Jesus, our Creator, is on the earth, fully manifesting His power and His wisdom and His love before their very eyes, they do not believe. And He explains why they don't believe in verse 37, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I by no means cast out. So you've seen, yet you do not believe. How is it that they will believe? All the Father gives me will come. Who will believe? All the Father gives, they'll believe. They'll come to Jesus. No one else will. How do we know that? Because John six forty four, Jesus said, no one can come to me. That's ability, not permission. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
All that the Father gives come. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. And all whom the Father draws, Jesus will raise up at the last day. Not one will be lost. And in case we don't understand, still Jesus reiterates in John 6, 63 through 65. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. The words I speak to are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. How has sin affected mankind? We are totally depraved. So depraved that even in the presence of perfect love and perfect holiness and perfect power, Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully man, come to redeem us, we would reject him. We would deny him. We would curse his very name. We would sell him out for a handful of silver, even as Judas before us, except by the grace of God. The difference between Judas and the other 11, the grace of God alone. The difference between you today and those proclaiming themselves to be atheists and storming our streets in defiance of God, cursing the name of Jesus as they carry their BLM signs, their rage is against God, not racism. It's God himself. And mankind's Rage has always been against God. Read Psalm 2 if you need a refresher in that. And so we are united in our rebellion, united in our sin against God, and left to ourselves, we will perish. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And praise God, all whom he grants, they will come, and he will raise them up. Not one will be lost. Romans 8.28 goes even further. What men will be saved from Adam's fall? Romans 8.28 and following answers that. The elect, the predestined, the chosen, the foreknown, the called, they will be saved. They will be saved. The elect, the predestined, the chosen, the foreknown, and the called men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved out from under the curse of Adam's fall. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. So the problem of evil for those who love God is no problem, for God has overcome it. And he's turning all the evil in this world, all the evil that we might experience, ultimately for our good, for those who are the called, according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Last week, I invited you to come to the deep end of the pool. And I said, you can bring floaties, it's okay. But it's a theological deep end of the pool. This week, you need to remove your floaties. Because we're not going to the deep end of the pool, we're, we're going to go cliff diving. If you cliff dive with floaties on, it's going to be very painful. The water's deep, it's been tested, mind you, there's no rocks beneath. But the leap is a bit fearful. And what's beneath in the sea, of course, makes some nervous. But praise God, he's sovereign over all the creatures of the sea as well. So we're cliff diving, if you will, into God's sovereignty into God's sovereignty over all things. And he has just declared that he works all things together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to his 
purpose. His purpose is coming to pass. His purpose is never convoluted. It is only and always plan A. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 31 then says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Remember, this is written to the persecuted church in Rome, the suffering church, the dying church. Dying deaths that were often... Horrific. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? This is proof of eternal inheritance and blessing as children of God. Jesus, His incarnation, His death, His burial, His resurrection. If God has so loved us in this way, oh, consider our future inheritance. Don't doubt it in light of current circumstance. Verse 33, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies proof of eternal salvation and security. That's what suffering in the name of Jesus is. It's proof of eternal salvation and security. It's not proof that you are a disowned, illegitimate child. No, all those who desire to follow Christ Jesus, they will suffer. Verse 34, who is he who is condemned? He is, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Who shall then separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? All these things normally would be called evil. They're all part of the problem of evil that we've been considering these last weeks. And hear me, those things do not separate us from the love of Christ. Rather, hear God. Those things do not separate you from the love of Christ. As it is written, verse 36, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. This is proof of life not proof of being an illegitimate child. This is proof of authentic Christianity, not proof of being forsaken, not proof of being abandoned by God, not proof of coming judgment, rather proof of joining in Christ's sufferings for Christ's glory, which is why everything was created. It was all created for the glory of Christ. And as we by the grace of God, endure suffering for the cause and name of Christ. Christ is glorified. He is made more magnificent in the eyes of men. His full glory is put upon the stage. We do not make Him more glorious, but we put His glory on display that it may be seen. Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, or any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And so for Christians, the problem of evil is overcome in God's sovereignty in that God is working all things for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And we trust God. We trust God. We trust him who has shown his love to us in the person of Jesus Christ, despite the fact that we cannot, we cannot always comprehend how this circumstance is good. And I totally identify with that last sentence. We cannot always comprehend how this circumstance is good in our finiteness and in our fallenness. And beware of both. One, you are short-sighted. You are finite. You know so little, as do I. Two, you're fallen. You still have a sin nature. And it would rise up in you and compel you to judge God if you're not careful. Compel you to cry out, this is not good compel you to say what Job said, better than I had never been born. Oh, may God guard us and may God increase our faith and consider what the Roman church, our brothers and sisters were suffering, the the list of horrors, evils they were suffering that God meant for their good and His glory. And take courage and take hope and by the grace of God, put off the finite mindset and put on the infinite mindset that comes with eyes set on eternity, right? Eternity. This is oh so brief. Look in the mirror, right? I know some of you are still pretty young. You're still growing. But hey, it goes by really fast, doesn't it? Some of you still feel young, but I'm going to tell you the truth. You're not. I still feel pretty young, but the truth is I'm not. I mean, come on, at 48, I'm over halfway there, almost certainly, right? Over halfway there. First one to heaven wins. This is brief. This is brief. Eternal glory is coming. The fullness of your Father's love forever and ever and ever and ever and ever is coming. All that really matters ultimately is you getting there and getting others there. That's all that really ultimately matters. And if you put on a wartime mentality, you kind of get that. Because in wartime, you get that, you know, sitting around peace and comfort That's not what it's about. It's about winning the war, winning the battle. Eternal peace will come. But this is wartime for the glory of our King. This is our one opportunity to war for our King's honor and for the souls of those for whom He pronounced to tell us die. Let us war. Let us fight a good fight. Let us be valiant. I'm so encouraged when I read biographies of soldiers and sailors and airmen and marines and their their undaunted courage as they lose limbs in the midst of fierce battle and press on, as they lose eyes and put them back in their head to press on. As they look around for their rifle that they lost and realize they lost it because they lost their arm and they pick it up with their other arm and press on in the fight lest their fellow soldiers die and the battle be lost. Oh, that God would give us courage and strength and endurance with an eye on eternity, an eye on the glory of the Lamb, the glory of our King. All theodicy or problem of evil roads lead to Romans 9. And there, the problem of evil must die. Turn to Romans 9, verse 6. There is evil in mankind. How do we explain it? What are we going to do about it? 
Romans 9 is the ultimate answer to that question. Pick up in verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. In Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. That is the question with the problem of evil, is it not? What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God has allowed evil. God has even ordained evil. And a step beyond that, God has ordained that He will elect some, predestine some, choose some for salvation and allow the rest to continue in their evil unto damnation. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? What is the answer? Two words. You want an answer? You want a theodicy? An answer to the question of the problem of evil? Certainly not. That is your Christian answer to the problem of evil. And there the problem must die, Christian. There it must die. Your God has spoken to that supposed problem and he has answered it definitively. Certainly not. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So God created mankind upright and ordained that the serpent would come to that garden and tempt them. And God allowed the serpent to come. He allowed Eve to be deceived and allowed Eve to give to Adam with her and knowingly sin. And God ordained that Abel would be a child of grace and Cain, a vessel of wrath. And he did so for his own glory and it is good. God answers the problem. He answers the question, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And he goes a step further, verse 15. He brings an illustration, but not a mere mythical or analogous illustration, an actual human being. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Here is our final answer. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. That's the two-word answer. But the Lord goes further. He says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. 
and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God is God. You are not. I love this answer. I love Romans 9. May God grant that you would love it too. If ever there was a text inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is that text. Now, mind you, Genesis to Revelation is inspired of the Holy Spirit. But God speaks as only God would speak in Romans 9. No man writes Romans 9. But God, who is totally unashamed of His absolute sovereignty over everything, even His sovereignty over the fall of man and election of particular men according to His own choosing, He is unashamed of and boldly declares and puts us back in our place. This is how God speaks to men. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Mind you, parents should speak a little bit like that to children. Why is it bedtime? Because I said it's bedtime. We don't reason all day long with children about why it's bedtime. Why do I eat peas? Because I'm mom and I said to eat peas. Oh, because look, here's the nutritional value. No, they're under the authority. You are the God-given authority. Hear me. We are like we children and sinful children at that. And we are under the authority of our creator. And God speaks to us. I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And that should cause us to sit up straighter in our seat and close our mouths like a child at the dinner table. That's our position before God, our Father. We need to put off arrogance. If you exercise your God-given intellect outside of the parameters of Scripture, it's called heresy. Or at least that's where it ends very quickly. So your thinking needs to come beneath the Word of God and the God of the Word, right? The Scriptures renew our minds. We're not free to think whatever we think. We want to think. We are to think what God says is true. We're to put on the mind of Christ. Oh, we love our freedom. We want to be free thinkers, free theologians. You know what you call a free theologian? A heretic. We need to come beneath the Word of God. Like children of God who hear God say, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, and say amen. The Lord goes further, as I said in verse 16, so then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, an actual human being, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Pharaoh was created for the glory of God, that God's name might be declared in all the earth as Pharaoh, who was an object of God's wrath, is put on the stage there in Egypt, hardening his heart as God hardens his heart and bringing ten plagues that magnify God's omnipotence over all the gods of Egypt and over the mightiest nation on the planet at that time. 
For this reason I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy in whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Mercy, where he wills, hardens who he wills. And he is sovereign in both and righteous in both. And he is unashamed of both. This is an Arminian nightmare. This is the truth. This is where every Arminian should repent and bend the knee to the God of Holy Scripture. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? The Lord knows our human, errant, arrogant response. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Look, you, you made me like this. You, you allowed me to be a descendant of Adam and you allowed the serpent in the garden and you allowed Adam and Eve to be deceived and to fall, or at least Eve to be deceived and Adam to knowingly sin. So how do you still find fault? Who has resisted his will? Verse 20, again, God speaks only as God speaks. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? You with finite knowledge and finite vision and fallen nature and mind, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power of the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And the answer is yes. And he does so in absolute holiness. Is there unrighteousness with God? Two words, Certainly not. Verse 22, What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God's ultimate answer is get out of my seat. I'm the potter, you're the clay. I make all vessels for my glory, some for wrath and some for mercy, but they're all for my glory. I'm the potter, you're the clay. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And there, every Christian says amen. We're at the edge of holy revelation. God declares, answers, and explains no more regarding his sovereignty over all things, including the fall of man into sin and the election of some sinners unto salvation according to his own sovereign purpose and will. Here your theodicy ponderings must stop. Here your problem of evil questions must end. Here your heart must find satisfaction, rest, and faith. You dare not press past this line in the sand of God's revelation and our understanding. Beyond this line, there was only a road to error, heresy, unbelief, damning heresy, and eternal apostasy. God is holy. God is just. God is truth. God is love. God elects. God predestines. God chooses. God calls. God loved Jacob and hated Esau righteously. And he's wholly unashamed to declare it so. God created Pharaoh as a vessel of wrath for his own glory. And he's wholly unashamed to declare it so. God is the potter. We are the clay. And God is wholly unashamed to declare it so. The potter creates vessels according to his own will. The clay doesn't question the potter beyond the potter's holy revelation. Let God be true and every man a liar. Humble your proud 
finite, ignorant, weak, sinful self beneath your holy, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God. That's the message of Scripture. That's our theodicy. That's the answer to the problem of evil. And the truth of God's wisdom and knowledge and holiness and justice and absolute sovereignty over all things should lead to worship. It should lead to worship. If that God isn't your God, you don't know God. You've crafted an idol not worthy of worship because it's an abomination, a mere figment of your fallen imagination. It doesn't exist. Proper handling of theodicy and the problem of evil leads us to worship as evidenced in Romans eleven thirty three, which comes after Romans 9. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How are unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whatever understanding we lack now, we can be confident of this right now and in the eternal eternal future, the truth of God's wisdom, knowledge, holiness, justice, and absolute sovereignty over all things compels both angels and blood-bought saints to worship God in heaven forever. Revelation 4, verse 11, all the heavenly host are worshiping God, saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Whatever we can't comprehend now, we can comprehend this. God is holy. He is a just judge. Man is sinful. Our judgment is fallen. We dare not rise up and attempt to judge God by an arbitrary standard because without the God who is holy, we have no standard but that which is arbitrary. We can understand that in the new heavens and new earth in which only righteousness dwells and we walk with our Father, that then we will understand more fully and we will with the heavenly angels and all the hosts worship God in His holiness. And there we rest in our hearts and in our minds beneath our sovereign King. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and your word. How rich, how powerful, how deep, how broad. We thank you that you are a God beyond our comprehension, whose ways are higher than our ways, Lord. We thank you that you have revealed so much to us. We pray, Father, that you would grant that our hearts and minds would come well beneath your holy word and that we would not ponder outside of the parameters you have set up, Lord, lest we err into heresy and apostasy. Hold us fast and hold us firm, Lord, knowing your goodness and your holiness and your kindness and your love to us in Christ Jesus. We give you all praise and glory in his name. Amen.